Hi, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against, episode 49. I took a slight break for a few days because I was fiddling with microphone problem, which would have been very easily resolved if I really knew what I was doing. But, you know, I'm not a professional podcaster. I don't have a sound engineer, so I have to figure these things out for myself. myself. Uh, you know, it's it was interesting. I was criticized for saying I was not an expert on this case, and I will continue to say that. Uh, I'm a journalist who's writing the story of this case and uh, I do know something about it more than almost anybody and I don't really consider myself to be an expert I don't know what that really involves I don't know what it would involve it would involve some sort of level of of knowledge in-depth knowledge that I'm not sure anybody has but I don't have it. Uh, I don't understand all the legal ramifications of all the appeals, for instance. A lot of the DNA analysis is well beyond anything I'll be ever be able to really talk about intelligently. I do understand the difference between chromosomal and mitochondrial DNA, and, and I understand a few other things about it. But not, I don't really understand it that well. So I'm not an expert on certainly a lot of aspects of the case. I think I have a, what I consider to be a very good overview of the case. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe events will prove me wrong. Maybe Bob Ruff will somehow magically get DNA testing and prove it was actually Mr. Bojangles who pulled off this killing. I, I These killings of Michael... Moore, Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch. I just don't know. I doubt it. Speaking of which, they were. He had Jim Clemente on his uh, podcast today, Ruff did, and uh, he. Um, they, they were taught. You know, I think the big takeaway I got from that was to. No surprise, wasn't any surprise at all, is that Jim Clemente and Damien Eccles are going to the same Hollywood parties. What a surprise. Um, I was taken by several misstatements that were made, and I'm going to dwell on one in particular because it feeds right into what I'm going to do today, which was that uh, Clemente and uh, Ruff agreed that Virtually all, all three boys had, you know, these wonderful, all three, not three boys, these three men, Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr., all had these great alibis, when in fact none of them do. And uh, I continue to cite this because this is the basis for Ruff justifying his new investigation because according to him, uh, since Eccles has this airtight alibi, the whole thing falls apart. The other thing that he will claim is that uh, Jesse Miskelly's uh, 
confession, since it talks about the use of a knife, and since he thinks he's proved that animal predation caused all those wounds, or virtually all the wounds, then therefore Jesse Miskelly's confession is not valid, and so therefore we don't have to worry about that. That's another, that's like, is the biggest evidence against the West Memphis Three is the confessions. And in fact, uh, animal predation is, uh, might have occurred some, uh, Adam, uh, West Memphis Three Facts posted quite uh, some things from Adam Galvin this week uh, about that showed the autopsy photos, which I frankly don't, you know, I haven't looked at them all. I don't really enjoy looking at them. I don't know that anybody would. But, uh, you know, going back and looking again, uh, it's pretty obvious to me that, for instance, the scrapes don't have an organic look to it. They have a man, it looks like something that would be left by a man-made object, like a knife and not claw marks. Uh, the idea that, uh, those little stabbing times, there's, there was so much there that made me think once again, just reminded me once again that the idea that animals create were the primary uh, attackers in this case, other than the drowning, is just absolutely a fabulous, amazing, ridiculous. It's a ridiculous story. It didn't happen that way. Now, let's set that aside. The confession. As far as I'm concerned, the confession's good. Jesse showed special knowledge in all sorts of ways. And yeah, he uh, he made a few mistakes, but he also got a lot of things right. In fact, he got the most important things right. Uh, and uh, the mistakes he made are explainable as uh, errors uh, that he inserted into the record to try to throw the police off. That said, now the alibis. Eccles has a phone call girl's alibi. Claims he's talking to girls on the phone all evening. The phone, the without getting all the nitty-gritty details, which has already been done, none of the girls said they were talking to him between uh, roughly 3.30 till 9.30, possibly late 9.20, possibly later at night. But no earlier than that. Um, the other uh, alibi element, which he hasn't used in a long time, is a visit to the Sanders family. And the Sanders family were very tight with uh, uh, the Eccles Hutchison people. Family, they'd lived together it's off and on for many years. So it was not as if they were like objective objective witnesses in any of this it, it was as if the family was there but both both girls that used used so-called time stamps just simply got it wrong particularly uh i think it's jennifer sanders who was the little girl that was at home 
she used her boyfriend's concert as the as uh, within the day or two of that as uh, how she remembered the date and the concert was two weeks later so that rules that out the uh, uh, Baldwin just simply didn't produce an alibi at, at trial and he's never been able to really produce a reasonable alibi since uh won't get i'm not going to get into analysis that that except to say he just doesn't have an alibi but he likes to say he does he claims he was talking to these girls on the phone they weren't talking to him they said they didn't talk to him he claims he he saw this uh asian kid which would have been don nam at the walmart playing video games don nam says he didn't see him you could go down the list to everything else is just Jason just making claims and hoping nobody looks too closely at what the record is. Um, now, Jesse is got the most complicated alibi because, you know, first he said he was at home. Like all three said, originally said they were just at home. And then Jesse said at first he was home. And then he came up with this wrestling trip alibi and then later uh this alibi that came creeping in about a police call supposedly offered him an alibi because he was on the scene of this police call none of that panned out in court in fact it really blew up in their face dan stidham overreached we got too many put too many witnesses on the stand and it was a disaster and I'm going to get into all that today. I originally thought I'd read all this, I'd podcast this before, but I think it was in some sort of abortive attempt to do an episode on this that I just simply had to scotch at some point. So if it turns out I somehow am mistaken and I actually have done this before, then I guess I'll just be repeating myself. There are worse things in the world to be repeating and, uh-oh. Yeah, I'm losing it now. I had it. Okay, here it is. Uh-oh. Briefly, this all this revolves around a murder of three little boys, Michael, Christopher, and Stevie. I think I've already mentioned their names. May 5th, 1993, uh, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. were arrested and convicted of the charge and later pled guilty in 2011. Uh, this is a chapter from one of my books, Where the Monsters Go. It's the second volume. There's a early, there's a first volume called Blood on Black. It's about 800 pages of comprehensive, non-redundant uh, material. I don't go back over the same stuff over and over again. The con I do go through con the confessions are somewhat redundant because Jesse Miskelly confesses so many times. So in that sense, it's redundant. And, I, you know, in a different sort of book, in a different sort of case, I could say he confessed again on such and such a date, throw in whatever few details I really need to do to clarify what that was about and move on. But uh, 
because this case is gets so disputed and people want to argue over every niggling detail. I wrote two volumes. I included all the information I could reasonably include that I could that I was able to find from mostly from court records, from independent research, from t- actually talking to the people that would actually talk to me, which wasn't a really long list, but I made an attempt to talk to virtually all the parties, particularly on the defense side. And I also have a a combined, condensed, revised version called The Case Against the West Memphis Street Killers. They're all on Amazon. They're all in Kindle. You can check them out. And I'm not going to finish this today. It's very long, and I've already talked for a while. But the chapter is, he could have been with them, but he did not have anything to do with it, I don't believe, which is not a, exactly a ringing statement of innocence, is it? Uh, the fate of the West Memphis Three was taken out of local hands when Judge David Burnett agreed to motions for changes of venue for both trials. Now, this is back in 19... I don't, probably issued the motions in 1993, but the trials were in 1994. Miskelly's trial was moved to Clay County, which is in the far northeastern part of the state. Uh, West Memphis is sort of in the middle, middle of the middle, as far as the up uh, north south orientation. But it's in the far west, far east. <laughs> sorry, it's West Memphis, but it's in the far east of the state. It's west of Memphis, literally. Um, and the Baldwin Eccles trial was moved to uh, Jonesboro, which is just. Uh, just north of Crittenden County. I think it's probably 45 minutes or so. Uh, jury selection began in the Miskelly trial on January 19th, 1994. Miskelly's family, neighbors, and friends made a strong and somewhat organized attempt to establish an alibi for Jesse for May 5th. Uh, his friend and neighbor, Stephanie Dollar, soon after the arrest, recalled that the police had been called out to Highland Trailer Park, which is where Jesse lived, after her child had been slapped. Copies of the report quickly made the rounds of the tight-knit community. Miskelly had a parade of witnesses to testify that he was on the scene at about 6.30 p.m. for the police call. Some witnesses supported the claim that he'd gone on a wrestling trip to Dias, Arkansas, soon afterwards. Attempts to put him at the police visit did not pan out. The officers who answered the calls knew Miss Kelly and did not see him at the scene they testified. Over a dozen people, including Stephanie Dollar, Susie Brewer, Jennifer Roberts, Christy Jones Moss, Charles Ashley, James McNeese, Lewis Hoggard, Dennis Carter, Fred Ravel, Roger Jones, <coughs> Kevin Johnson, Keith Johnson, and Johnny Hamilton testified about supposed alibis. Uh, Jesse Miskelly Sr. also gave testimony claiming that he had gotten out of DWI school around 7 p.m., do I have to t- explain what DWI school is? It's where you go 
it's where you get ordered by the court to go when you've been convicted of driving while drunk. Uh, anyway, Jesse, uh, Jesse Sr., not Jesse Jr., Jesse Sr. said that he drove home and spoke to Jesse Jr. at 7.15, a bit before he left to go wrestling. Uh, Miss Kelly Sr. testified he left his mechanic's job at Jim's repair shop, quote, at 5.30 because they wanted me to be there early to make the payment. Class started at 6, and it was supposed to have lasted until 8, but they let us out at 7 o'clock. I came straight home. It was about 15 minutes after when I got home. It was about 15 minutes after when I got home is what I think he's saying. It took him about 15 minutes to get home is what he's saying. Well, I seen all those police cars were leaving out as I was coming in the trailer park, and I got scared they were going to get me for driving on a suspended license. So I hurried up and went home. Now, if 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 his timeline was correct, and it's not, uh, he wouldn't be seeing the police officers leaving the scene. Okay, so that's, he's making stuff up. Uh, and my son, Jesse, came in, and I asked him what was going on. And he said the police were called out there because of Connie Molden had pulled Stephanie's little boy, Cody, off the bicycle by the hair of the head and slapped him. And they called the police out for that. And then when Bobby Jr. came in, Stephanie's husband, him and Connie's husband, Melvin, got into it. Well, almost well, they almost got into a fight down there and they called the police back out there again. And they were leaving out as I was going in about 7.15. And then uh, that's what Miss Skelly Sr. said. Then he testified that Jesse, quote, left about 7.30 to go to Dias, Arkansas, to wrestle. And he named off uh, Johnny Hamilton, Freddie Ravel, Josh Darby, little Dennis Carter. And there was some other guy, Bill or something or other, I don't know his name. It's a quote. And he said, I, he admitted he did not see them leave. Under cross-examination by prosecuting attorney Brent Davis, Miss Kelly was asked about statements that his son may have been at the crime scene. And when he'd been asked if little Jesse had been with Eccles and Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly Sr. told KAI-TV on January 7th, quote, I don't believe he did it because, yeah, he could have been with them, but he did not have anything to do with it, I don't believe. Uh, Miskelly explained himself on the stand. That was before I found out. That was before I went to work on the case and found out that he was not there. I didn't have proof or anything. I said he... I said he may have been there, I do not know. I said, but if he was there, he didn't have anything to do with killing those boys. As you can see, uh, Big Jesse was doing his best to cover himself on that, and he probably did about as well as you'd expect, considering that you know he's just he said something that was in retrospect was pretty stupid if he wanted to defend his son. 
the defense had a receipt showing Big Jesse attended the DWI class on May 5th, and Gloria Wilson, who conducted the class, testified, and she said the class ended, quote, anywhere from 7.30 to 8, but, uh, or these classes did. But on this particular one, they rang closer to 8 because I was being evaluated. She testified the May 5th class date at least as late as 7.45. She produced a sign-up sheet showing Miss Kelly Sr. attended. Uh, so here we have uh, Miss Kelly Sr. making these statements, and then you bring in this uh, witness with at least some sort of authority who... And she does have some documentation, and she says it didn't happen the way he said. So this isn't going well as far as alibi witnesses. Uh, years later, Miss Kelly Sr. laid out a timeline on Jesse Jr.'s alibi for May 5th. Now, this was not during the trial. Years later. <coughs> but this is... And I think it's I think it's a much better attempt at an alibi and an alibi uh, timeline than I've seen from the Baldwin camp or the Eccles camp, despite all the all the in, intelligence they've uh, intelligent advisors they've had, highly paid advisors that they've had. Uh, Baldwin still can't come up with a credible alibi, and he and his mother uh, keep shooting themselves in the foot with new explanations that just make him look more and more like a liar, which he is. And uh, Eccles just, of course, can get by with just mouthing the same old lie that he's been mouthing for, what, 15, 20 years now and get by with it because... Those like Bob Ruff, he'll just simply dumbly accept whatever he says as gospel because he's Damien. Uh, he doesn't have to prove anything to them. They trust his word. Even though he's a proven liar, they will trust his word. Uh, anyway, this is uh, Miskelly Sr.'s timeline. At 9 a.m., Miskelly Sr. woke Jesse to go to work with Ricky Dees and Josh Darby. From 9 to a.m. to 1 p.m., Jesse was roofing with Dees and Darby. At 2 p.m., Dees' wife saw Jesse in Highland. Jesse was with Susie Brewer from 3.30 to 7 p.m., including uh, from 5.30 to 6.30 at Stephanie Dollar's. At 6.30, Jesse and Susie went outside to see the police call and were seen by Charles Ashley, Susie Brewer, Jennifer Roberts, Stephanie Dollar, Christy Jones, Dennis Carter, and Lewis Hoggard. And Lewis Hoggard talked with him. At 6.45, Jesse and Susie went to Johnny Hamilton's. They walked back to the Miskelly home where they encountered Jennifer and Christy. At 7.15, Jesse walked Susie to Stephanie Dollars. He returned home to get a wrestling mask as Miskelly Sr. was arriving home from DWI school. Between 7.15 and 7.30, Jesse left for Dias with Freddie Ravel, Bill Cox, Roger Jones, Dennis Carter Jr., and Johnny Hamilton. At 8, 
uh, Jesse and his friends met, met Keith Johnson at the Exxon station near Turrell. From 8 to midnight, Jesse was wrestling with Bill Cox, Dennis Carter, Roger Jones, Johnny Hamilton, and Keith Johnson. And that all sounds great on the face of it. As I say, it's a much better, more comprehensive alibi statement than anything you're going to get from uh, Eccles or Baldwin. But the problems with that timeline date from its consistent contradiction with evidence and with the conflicting statements from the various witnesses that are cited. The first witnesses for the defense, establishing that he worked as a roofer early on May 5th, did little to help or hurt the defense, but contradictory testimony soon followed. The only major early surprise in testimony from came from John, John Josh Darby, who also lived in Highland, and he claimed that Jesse had spent the night with him at his mom's house on May 4th. The prosecution pointed out that he made, made no mention of that in handwritten statements to police. However, it's not that important, but, you know, it's just one of those, it, it's just wasn't mentioned up to that point. Uh, and it does contradict what uh, Miss Kelly Sr. said, that he woke up Jesse Jr. So right off the bat, I'm not going to go back and explain every time Miss Kelly Sr.'s alibi statements contradicted. I don't think maybe I will. But it becomes such a frequent thing that it becomes highly redundant at some point. But early on, we already have this problem. We get these conflicting stories. Uh, even on an important detail like where Jesse spent the night on May 4th. Uh, Darby did not know when Miss Kelly came over that evening, which would have May 4th, he didn't think he and Jesse were together by 9 p.m. on May 4th. Other than that, his testimony was largely in accord with statements from June 17th and June 18th that he'd given police, though times and other details varied among all his statements. And I'm, it's pointless to get into all that. Who cares what time of day? I mean, this is somewhat like Ruff's victimology. I mean, we could go. We could go into work out the timeline when when uh, Jesse went to work that day and where he went, and, and try to work out all the details and work out the contradictions. There's no point in it. It's not really highly relevant. Just as it's not that important, it's good that they did. They it, the police did did go out and talk to people, but you know the actions of Michael, Christopher, and Stevie up until six thirty you know, got them in the woods, but what really mattered was what happened in the woods. The actions that occurred prior to that were very simple, everyday actions of three boys out playing. Uh, Christopher was having a little bit more drama than usual. Or maybe he had, maybe that was like every an everyday drama with Christopher because he does seem to have been somewhat hyperactive. But uh, it wasn't anything highly unusual and it wasn't anything that was highly relevant or seemingly wouldn't be anything highly relevant at this point to a solution to the case. <coughs> Unless you're going to come up with some off-the-wall theory. 
or actually not come up with an off-the-wall theory, just mouth the same off-the-wall theory that other people have already come up with, which is more Bob Ruff's style. When he just just simply isn't just simply making stuff up, which he's been known to do. On June 7th, he wrote, uh, Jesse Miskelly was with me until 2.30 roofing. This is Darby now. And when we got off from roofing, Jesse went home and had two sandwiches and then went to see his girlfriend. And after that, I didn't see him until later, about 5.30. He came over when I he left. I didn't see him until the next day. He was over at my house for about 15 minutes. As far as Jesse being a devil worshiper, I never did know anything about. And I been knowing Jesse almost all my life. Now, he puts Jesse over at his house about 5.30. And he was over there for 15 minutes. Sounds like at least a partial alibi. We're getting close to the time that Jesse would have needed to leave to get to Robin Hood Hills in order to commit the murder. The problem is, is it contradicts numerous other people. Uh, on his June 18th statement, Darby gave more details and he changed the times. Jesse Miskelly was with me on Woodlawn Roofing until 1.30. Then we got off after that, he went home. I didn't see him until 3.30. And then when I seen him then, him and his girlfriend, Susie Brewer, at the bus stop. On the corner by Jesse's house, after I got, went back in, he's not really a very good writer. Jesse came down later that day about 5.30. He stayed about 15 minutes. Uh, Jesse was by himself. He just... And there's a question mark, talked a few minutes and he left. And there's assumption here that he said he was going home. I didn't see Jesse until the next, whatever, <laughs> when we went to the pump. But so I am not sure I have knowing Jesse almost all my life. And I never knew about Jesse being a devil worshiper, devil worshiper. It's how he's D-I-V-I-L-W-A-R-S-I-H-I-P-E-R. Jesse never sighed, not, didn't say said, sighed, S-I-D-E, anything about those three little boys. Now, J Josh Darby's literacy skills are really very poor, but you get the general idea. And the, again, the problem with his times is it contradicts other people. Uh, on the stand, Darby testified he and Miss Kelly had gone roofing starting around 9 a.m. and wrapping up around 12.30 or 1. We went back to Highland, uh, he testified. Ricky dropped us off at Jesse's house. Jesse said he was going to get go get him something to eat. After that, I went home and Jesse said he was going back down to Stephanie's house. And then Darby said he saw Miss Kelly again with Susie Brewer at Stephanie Dollar's house around four. Jesse come down to my house after he got to talk to his girlfriend. He stayed at my house for about 15 or 20 minutes and said he was going to his house. That was the last time I seen him. Now, for instance, Susie Brewer says she was with him all this time. So somebody's not, somebody's not telling, I'm not going to accuse him of lying maybe misremembering 
But you cannot be you cannot be away from Susie Brewer and with Susie Brewer the entire time. And if that were the only contradiction going on here, it would be a relatively minor problem that maybe the jurors could work out, uh, write it down to faulty memory. But these this kind of contradiction goes just piles up uh, to the nth degree with this with Miskelly's alibi, which is one reason nobody nobody really has tried to even look at the thing because it's so complicated. So many different witnesses and they all contra- they know they don't all contradict each other. But a lot of them contradict some of them contradict themselves and <laughs> then they contradict other people. And it gets to be very complicated. And it's easier just to say that the alibis just simply don't add up. They don't work out, which is what I could have done with this and written in another book. Maybe I would have written three sentences explaining that. Instead, I'm going into detail because otherwise these supporters just won't believe. Of course, they won't believe this anyway, but it has to be. I felt that things need to be laid out so that they understand exactly Miskelly has no alibi. We already see the problems here, and we haven't even gotten deep into it at all. Ruff doesn't see this as a problem. Ruff is not. <laughs> Ruff just simply goes, oh, yeah, he had all these witnesses, and, yeah, they sounded great. They had him at the police call, and then they had him uh, on the wrestling trip, and, you know, he couldn't, have been, he couldn't have been in Robin Hood Hills. Oh, yes, he could have because the witnesses aren't credible. And the more of them you add, and the less cre- you know, each one contradicting the next one, the less credible they become. Dan Stidham was incredibly inept in how he handled this particular case with these witnesses. A few witnesses might have been able to pull it off, bring in twelve or fifteen people who aren't schooled, aren't educated, aren't disciplined, and uh, telling different stories. You ruined whatever chance he had for an alibi. Uh, Darby continued to deny knowing anything about Miskelly's cult activities. Let me make sure I get this back up here. After he described their real close friendship, the prosecution asked if he was familiar with Miskelly's practice of huffing gasoline. Uh, Darby denied any knowledge about that. And uh, Darby said that uh, Miskelly had what he, he would call a regular haircut on May 5th. Now, Miskelly changed his hairstyle around the time of the killings, having lines drawn in the side and later adding a knot on top. As you, and you can see that style in the familiar mugshot that was made when he was arrested. Uh, witnesses gave varying description of Miskelly's hairstyle for May 5th. Um, Buddy Lucas, his friend that he confessed to, described Miskelly getting this hairstyle the day after the killings. And one has to ask the question, was this some sort of extreme (coughs) reaction to the killings? I mean, what was going on in Jesse's head? We know that he was disturbed by all this. 
And I realize people get different haircuts at different times for different things. Certainly not something you'd convict anybody on, but it, it does raise a question. What was going on in his head at the time? Uh, and then Darby returned to the stand to clarify that his mom's house was in Little's Trailer Park, not Highland Trailer Park, and that his mother did not have a phone, so they had to use a pay phone at a nearby store to make these phone calls they talked about. Uh, Little's Trailer Park was a smaller trailer park that's between Lake Shore and Highland Trailer Park, and it is on the uh, on the west side of, of Interstate 55, and it's you come upon it very soon after going under this uh, going through this underpass which is where Jesse Miskelly Jr. described breaking the Evan Williams bottle after participating in the killings. Uh, Ridge had taken a statement from Ricky Dees, Brian Ridge is a detective. Brian Ridge had taken a statement from Ricky Dees, a 27-year-old construction worker who lived in Highland on June 12, 1994. At that time, Dees wrote, I, Ricky Dees, have known Jesse Miskelly Jr. for about eight or nine years. I don't know of him ever having a steady job during that period of time. Now, at the time of the arrest, Miskelly was 17, almost 18. So Ricky Dees knew him since he was, what, eight, eight or nine, ten years old. So the idea that he didn't have a job most of that time was not really that relevant. Uh, I knew that he was on that he has on occasion worked with his father at Jim's Diesel. On five five ninety three, I asked Jesse to work with me to do some roofing. He worked for me on that Tuesday, and until. 12.30 p.m. on that Wednesday, 5.593. I went back to his house at about 1 or 1.30 p.m. and was going to use him to clean up the job site. But his father told me that he had gone to Stephanie Dollar's house. I thought Jesse was a good worker. He was on time when I wanted to pick him up, and he followed instructions well on the job. And this is a guy who works with him. And he doesn't describe him as being slow, semi-retarded, unable to follow instructions. He seems to have the mind of a six-year-old. No, he says he was a good worker. He followed instructions well. He had enough sense to be on time. Had enough sense of time to be on time. <coughs> he goes on. I had never seen the other two boys that Jesse was supposed to have been arrested with. It was the following Friday when I paid him for the work he did for me. I am fairly certain that North Woodlawn was the street where Jesse worked with me. I usually work late hours all year, and I don't get to see a lot of people in the trailer park. Uh, Dees testified that he picked up Miss Kelly and Darby at Little's Trailer Park at about 9 said, I used him all day Tuesday, but only half a day Wednesday, dropping him and Darby off about 1 p.m. at the Miskelly home. Quote, I came back, I come back at 1, I come back about 1.30. I told them that day I probably wouldn't need them after lunch. Uh, 
I mean, I dropped by to get them to help me clean up, but they was gone. His daddy said he was going to Stephanie Dollar's house. Dees knew nothing about any cult activity. And so we established what Jesse Miskelly did during the day. It wasn't really that necessary, but we did it. And Dees is a really good witness, very consistent, no problems there. And he actually says nice things about Miskelly. He's a good defense witness. Uh, Susie Brewer, Miskelly's 14-year-old girlfriend, gave a written statement to police on June 7th, 1993, which is after he was arrested, about two weeks after he was arrested. Actually, exactly two weeks after he was arrested. That was key to Miskelly's alibi. (coughs) Susie, who was a ninth grader at the time at Marion Junior High, wrote... Wednesday, 5-5-93, I saw Jesse Miskelly Jr. at 3.30 p.m. I met him at Stephanie Dollar's house after I got out of school. We watched Stephanie's kids until 9 o'clock, I mean 4 o'clock. That was me, not her. We left after she got home. We walked down to Johnny Hamilton's trailer for about an hour or hour and a half. We left around 5.30 because we wanted to see what was going on. Because we heard the commotion, because her kid was crying, and about 6.30, the cops come out to Highland Park, and I went around Stephanie's around 7, because he said he was going to Dias, Arkansas, for training for wrestling. He had his mask, came to Stephanie's with it. All of Stephanie's kids wanted to try it on. He left around 7.10 or 7.20. I watched him walk down to Roger's house. It would be Roger Jones to ask him if he wanted to go wrestling with him. She says, Roger is Roger Jones. I never knew Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin on Wednesday, May 5th, 1993. She gave the statement to Durham in the presence of her mother, uh, Beverly Gefell. I'm not really sure how that name is pronounced. And so we see she puts him... Uh, it's pretty simple, really. Uh, Stephanie's until four. Then they walk down to Johnny Hamilton's trailer in there for an hour and a half or so. Left about 5.30 because there's some sort of commotion coming on. And then she says about 6.30, the cops came out. Went back to Stephanie's around seven. Uh, Jesse goes, gets his wrestling mask, and he leaves around 7.20. Uh, Again, this on its face, uh, some contradiction with, we've already talked about uh, Josh Darby saying he talked to Miskelly 15, 20 minutes at 530. So we already got this contradiction going here. But otherwise, this sounds like a pretty good alibi, doesn't it, so far? And, you know, on its, on its own, it doesn't sound bad at all. The problem is, is when you get into, again, comparing it to everybody else, it gets to be a big problem. Uh, Brewer testified that after she got home from school about 3.30, I went to Stephanie's. That where Je- that's where Jesse was because he was babysitting Stephanie's kids. And just imagine this this guy, it's, it, there's a paradox here. Here's a guy who, on at least two other occasions that we know of, had gotten in legal trouble for attacking um, 
uh, a younger child, a younger girl with a rock or a stone hitting one, an eight-year-old, I think she was, with some, she threw some rocks, hit this other child, I think she was 10 or so, with a brick outside of the head. Um, very violent fellow in a lot of respects. But he was babysitting Stephanie Dollar's kids, and we know he hung around with Vicki Hutchinson's son, Aaron, and Aaron seemed, didn't seem to have any problems with Jesse Miskelly Jr. So, um, and there are many, like, there are many other reports of Jesse Miskelly being violent, being a bully, uh, acting out in all sorts of really bad ways. So it's not as if those are bad reports. It's just there's a contradict. There is a contradictory character here. There's a paradox here, if you will. He's okay. He's okay okay with these kids, but he's not okay with these. Um, anyway, St- Susie went on to say, and she's talking about Stephanie, and she says, and she got back about four, and we went walking. We went to Johnny Hamilton's about four fifteen, four. Again, she's still sticking pretty much to the story. <coughs> and she claimed she had been with Miss Kelly almost the whole afternoon. He was probably out of my sight about 15, 20 minutes. The first time he went to McNeese's to talk to him, and then I was standing in his yard when he was talking to Lewis. Now, she's talking about talking to talking to. Lewis Hoggard and McNeese, whatever his name is. I'll get to it in a bit. But the thing is, is that that doesn't really jive with what Josh Darby said. Now, does it? Uh, she said Miss Kelly and Lewis Hoggard talked about 6.30, though she wasn't sure of the time. Then, quote, he went back to his house to get the mask, and he was letting little kids try it on. And the little kids were Cody and Justin Romero, who were Stephanie Dollar's children. She last saw Miskelly at 7 p.m. Quote, I walked to Stephanie's and I looked and I was watching him walk to Roger's house. All I know is he went to Dias. Her testimony was largely consistent with her June 17th statement, but made no mention of the police call until cross-examination by the prosecution. It's This is very funny. You know, this is... going to add a little bit here at the end at the end uh, this is it I'm trying to edit out a mistake at the end and I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to figure out how to do it or not so if you want to listen to my mistake go ahead otherwise I'm going to drop I'm going to stop it here hopefully I'll pick the Miskelly alibi the uh, chapter up again in the next day or two. I'm supposed to be on with William Ramsey tomorrow. And uh, William and I agree on many aspects of the case. And I think we agree on how awful we find Bob Ruff. So maybe it'll be like talking to ourselves. But... Uh, 
I I'm, I hope it'll be. I think it'll be a fruitful discussion. I think I think we both have concerns that go far beyond just the fact that he sometimes get things wrong. Because frankly, as I just demonstrated, sometimes I get things wrong. You know, but if when I do, I try to fix it. He doesn't try to fix it. He just rambles right on. If anything, he doubles down on his mistakes. Uh, so that's it for for me. From me for today. This is Easter Sunday. I'm wishing you well. Stay safe. Stay at home. Stay in place. Stay healthy. And happy Easter to all of you. Thank you. It's the woman who's really organized the effort to get this this um, police call alibi together, but. Stidham asked her nothing about it on direct. Prosecution brings it up. And the prosecution brings it up for a very good reason. Because it's going to cast some doubt about how credible this uh, police call alibi actually is with good reason. Under cross-examination, she admitted she talked with She talked with, um, <coughs> let me make sure I've got this right here. Oh, this is Susie. <coughs> you know what? I I just made a big mistake. I was thinking I was talking about Stephanie used at some point. Under cross-examination, she admitted she talked with Stephanie Dollard, Johnny Hamilton, Okay, this is enough for one day. I'm going to stop.